Check out sponsor Aviatrix's flight training to learn about multi-cloud networking and security from the Aviatrix perspective. Aviatrix.com slash flight dash training. Worth your time if you're defining your company's multi-cloud strategy or want to nail down your Aviatrix certified engineer cert. Aviatrix.com slash flight dash training. Welcome to Day 2 Cloud. Today is an episode about trends and predictions, what's going to happen in the future. And we're going to gaze into a crystal ball with Adrian Moat. He's the chief scientist over at Container Solutions, and he had a bunch of different things he wanted to talk about. One thing that jumped out to me was WebAssembly. It's a thing that I keep hearing about. I hear whispers in the hallways or the virtual hallways, as it were, that this is a new technology that's going to replace a bunch of things. And he set me straight on what it actually does and what it actually might replace. So for me, that was the most interesting thing. Ethan, what jumped out to you in the conversation? Oh, there were a couple other things. You know, one, we got into Kubernetes and what comes next because of some of the complaints about Kubernetes getting com uh, complex and so on to implement. So where, where do we go next? Is it Kubernetes or something else? Uh, but then a bigger idea for me, Ned, was the notion of GitOps and the trend of dealing with infrastructure as code and managing that code in some kind of a version control repository, which enables you to operate with a large group group of people that you are doing ops work with and how that looks. And, and so I, I, that's been grabbing my attention because it's, it's a complicated thing, but oh baby, it's necessary. Yes, you need that single source of truth that the uh, environment can draw from and GitOps gets you there. So that was very cool. Enjoy this conversation with Adrian Moat, Chief Scientist at Container Solutions. Well, Adrian, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. We're very excited to talk to you and the, the whole genesis of this discussion was a blog post that you wrote about trends in cloud computing and some predictions. Now I know like when we make predictions that can always be a dicey prospect. So I like, I like that. I think you called them more trends than predictions. Um, can you, can you just start us off with uh, what was the thought process behind writing that post? Yeah. So at container solutions, we actually have uh, an editor to help out with our, our blog posts uh, and the whole process and also to, to go over a post and, and correct all the, the dodgy English. Um, <laughs> and so he, I think, I think it was Charles's suggestion. So he actually, I think he's got a background in like InfoQ and, and other places. Um, I think it was his suggestion to write this blog post. I can't fully remember, slightly lost through the mists of time. But basically what happened, I thought, oh yeah, I can do this in an afternoon. Um, <laughs> and I just, you know, I, I had things at the top of my head and I just started writing. Um, and, it, you know, in an afternoon, I had a lot of thoughts, but then it just sort of spiraled. I mean, it got completely out of control. Um, and then people, you know, then I show it to somebody and they had so much feedback and said, hey, you should look at this as well. And yeah, it, it got ridiculously out of control. And uh, at one point I had to say, right, nobody else has seen it. Like, it's <laughs> it's done now. I've, I've got enough. End of. Um, but regarding the predictions, I did call it predictions. So the official title is Predictions of for the future of computing or the inane ramblings of our chief scientist. <laughs> That's right. You are so the I chief scientist. <laughs> yeah. So I did try to take the age, edge off by sort of saying inane ramblings. Um, but yeah, it was just, it, it really felt like getting the, you know, sometimes when you, I don't know how much you write blogs, but sometimes when you start writing, it just sort of flows. Um, mm -hmm. And you're like, cause the idea is at the top of your head. Yeah. And that's how it started. And that was nice. And then it, yeah, then it went from there and was not so, 
it, it starts with an idea and then you get flowing and then more and more happens and comes to your mind. And then the next thing you know, it's like, this was going to be a 500 word post and it's 2000. Yeah. Or more. Right. Yeah. More or less. It's, it's also, you know, sometimes I'll go to write a blog and I'll have to research it and work through it and structure it. And, and it doesn't flow. It's hard work. Um, but because this had been some of this had been stuff that I was thinking about at the time, it was on the top of my head. So I could just let you just sit down and type. But then all the feedback, all the talking to people, all the further suggestions, all the going down the rabbit holes, that was the painful part. Right, right. And and you did call out, a, I think there are 10 things total in the list. And uh, listeners, if you're interested in reading the post, it's it's on the long side, but it's super readable. I, I didn't realize how long it was till I got to the end. I was like, oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> so highly recommend reading through the post. We'll include it in, in the show notes. But I do want to call out some specific predictions that you made. Uh, just because predictions are tricky, you know, in technology, stuff is changing constantly. 10 years ago, we didn't know what a Kubernetes was. And now, well, like, I guess I can spell it. So I've made it that far. Um, out of the list of 10, what were some of the predictions that you felt very confident about in the list? Uh, I feel a bit bad trying to choose ones that I'm more confident about. Um, <laughs> okay. I, we've picked out some of the more interesting ones, at least. Um, so one was like Kubernetes rivals and some of them that you can see happening already. So a lot of them are less risky because they're sort of happening already. The big question is to what extent do they happen, right? Mm. So one obvious one is like Kubernetes rivals. Well, we're definitely already sort of seeing things there. Um, but, you know, the question is, will any of them actually overtake Kubernetes and how long will it take for that to happen? Well, and you can look at those rivals, Adrian, as... Are they are they rivals or, or more alternatives in the sense that some people will need full-blown Kubernetes for everything it gives you, uh, but and other folks, and they tend to complain about the complexity of operating a Kubernetes environment, are maybe looking for something uh, simpler, and, and maybe that's where rivals and alternatives come to the fore. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So what you'll probably see is um, for simpler use cases, and you already do, as you, as you mentioned, you know, you've got stuff like, I don't know, Cloud Run, um, Remember the AWS equivalent, um, you know, things where you can just run a container and you don't have to worry about the whole Kubernetes or whatever. Um, and that's certainly easier for stuff on the simple side. Um, the, the, I think one of the big questions, though, is will we see sort of a platform as a service or PaaS things on top of Kubernetes to simplify things? Or will we see people using things that are, are completely different? You, you don't mean Kubernetes as a service. You mean, you said layer on top of. Yes, like, it, and you see this a bit, like platform as a service. What you see a lot of companies is they might use Kubernetes, especially sort of large enterprise companies. Hmm. Um, but they, they use it in a specific way. And you have stuff, even like OpenShift, it's really like a, a layer on top of mm -hmm. Kubernetes. And what you'll and what we'll see, and what and we'll see more of is like companies saying, okay, we use Kubernetes, but the way you use it is this. And they'll have their own sort of layers on top. So, you, you know, you'll define your services uh, in a certain way and they'll have libraries to help you. And if you do it that way, you know, it'll work a lot nicer, but there'll be certain things that'll be less flexible at the same time. Okay, but so Kubernetes Rivals was one. Uh, another thing that I that jumped out to me, and I think you, you'd also brought this up in a previous conversation we had, was GitOps. So what, what about GitOps was a, a trend or something you're seeing uh, that, 
you you think will advance or, or mature in the next five years or so? Yeah, I mean, so that's another one that's definitely happening now, and I'm just kind of tipping it to become uh, a bigger. The question is, you know, will it become the dominant way to run Kubernetes? Uh, and I think that's, you know, it's it's a good chance it kind of will. Um, I'm not sure I should define what GitOps is now, or if you want to come back to that. <laughs> I think uh, we can we can come back around to GitOps. I want to get the the other two uh, items in, and then we can expand on all of them. So another one, and this this is one that we've had conversations on Day Two Cloud about before, but I'm, I do want to hear your perspective on it. Is cloud repatriations? Is that something you have actively seen happen, or you've just been reading some articles about it and and thinking? To yourself, yeah, I could see that occurring more often. Yeah, it, more or less the latter. Also conversations with people that are, are more involved in the industry. So we're looking at things like Oxide Computing and where they're going and the fact that they think there's a market for like a, you know building compute. Um, you know, that I assume it, it is set up from the start to work well in sort of a data center environment or on-prem environment uh, that perhaps... You know, some of the traditional big iron companies haven't been doing such a good job of. You know, and I, I assume they're aiming more to provide like a, a cloud-like experience for uh, on-prem users. And I think it's, I think we're also starting to see like Dell and HP heading down exactly the same road. And so, just based on what the vendors are doing, um, yeah. I think it's definitely something. And also, you know, I've listened to like Brian Cantrell talk about it, and you get into the things like CapEx and OpEx and so on. Um, so yeah, I definitely think there's a good chance that will happen just from conversations, but it's not something that I can point to specific instances of. Okay. And, and the fourth one that I saw, this was sort of, it had its own section, but it also seemed to be sprinkled through a lot of the other ones was WebAssembly or, or WASM, I've heard it called. Uh, what about that really has, uh, has struck a chord with you? Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably... You know, we've been a good answer to your earlier question. I, I guess that's what I was really thinking about when I started the predictions blog, blog post. Um, so I can't claim to be very knowledgeable about WebAssembly. I've really only played with it, but even from playing with it and from talking to people, um, I can see it solves a lot of the issues that we've had in computing in, in the past. And the reason I sort of got into it at the start was because of the comparisons. Um, with Docker, so like my history, I you know I wrote a book on Docker. Um, I've been involved a lot with with containers, and there's this famous like tweet by uh, Solomon Hikes, who was a the founder of Docker, where he says, you know, if we had a WebAssembly, we wouldn't have needed to create Docker. Um, oh. And it's all about basically portable computing. Okay, yeah, that that uh, that's something containers definitely gave us, but it's still reliance on the construct inside of, of Linux, the way that it, it's wrapped up. And it really took existing tech and just made it easier to use, right? That was so Docker's whole claim to fame was, hey, yeah. we took this complicated thing and made it easier for you. Absolutely. Um, so it's probably, this is a good place to, to dig in more because Wasm was at the front of your brain for for writing this post. Uh, what what is Wasm? I, I don't necessarily understand what it is and and why it matters from an operation and cloud perspective. Is this just like a developer tool? <laughs> uh, yes. Well, probably not. Um, so Wasm or, or WebAssembly, um, the standard joke is that it's neither web nor assembly, which <laughs> is, is kind of true. Uh, it's, 
And from the web part of that, it certainly goes beyond the web. So it's actually got some pretty nice use cases just for like on, you know, um, on laptops or on machines that aren't even necessarily connected to the web. It doesn't have to be in a browser, although that's kind of where its origins are. Um, and the, the assembly part is an interesting one because technically it's not an assembly language because it doesn't target hardware. It targets like a, a virtual machine, if you like. Mm. But it's a very simplified virtual machine. So in some ways, it's, it's like a cross between like Java bytecode and real assembly. And I do also wonder if somebody creates hardware that runs WebAssembly, does it then become an actual assembly language? I, I would give it a pass. Yeah. <laughs> so in a way, it's it's very similar to what Java was trying to be, which is having a, a JVM for each operating system. But in some regards, it, is, it, is it faster, more efficient, more secure than Java? I know Java has been plagued with security issues for, for quite some time. Right. So that's a kind of exactly the, you know, I gave a talk like a, a couple of months ago on WebAssembly. Um, and that's kind of exactly the approach that I took comparing it to Java, because I think that's that gets at the heart of a lot of what it what it is. Um, and they, because of course Java had this write once run anywhere idea. Mm -hmm. So we were talking about you know Docker containers a minute ago, uh, and the thing with Docker containers is you still have to target like um, hardware, which is normally x eighty six sixty four. But there's no reason you can't have ARM, whatever containers, v seven containers or whatever. Um, but then you've got to compile things for that given architecture. With WebAssembly, you know, it's a bytecode. So as long as you have uh, a virtual machine for the architecture, it'll run, which is the same as Java. Um, and I think that's the right way to think about it. Um, if you compare it to Java, it's a lot simpler bytecode. I mean, the thing with Java, they never really, the Java bytecode was, was never really intended as a target, except for the Java programming language. Um, whereas WebAssembly is, so it's actually, you know, much simpler to implement uh, mm. than it would be to implement um, to target some like JVM or even implement a JVM for a new platform. Yeah, so I think you also were, you know, there's the question, but is it like a language, a framework, or, or a platform? And uh, yeah, it gets a bit complicated because in some ways it's it's all those things. Because um, one thing, okay, we we have this WebAssembly target, but it traditionally needs a, a browser to run in. It needs some way. There's no sort of input-output defined. The way you do input and output in WebAssembly is you just have a sort of flat section of memory, basically a big array, and you can write mm. to that and you can read from that, and that's it. So you need some way to interface with the outside system. Yeah, You need to go between the sort of flat memory and the OS or the browser. And that's where uh, you know, all the support in WebAssembly libraries and frameworks and so on come in. But it's not. It, it isn't a language, though. It, it's it as of the reading I was doing on it, Adrian. It felt like an environment that supports potentially a variety of languages. And I think most of the examples I read show JavaScript being executed in uh, in a WASM environment. Is that can, can we at least make that delineation? Uh, almost. <laughs> I would say <laughs> no. To be perfectly frank, um, so yeah, I'll, I'll give you some links for the the show later. But but one of the really cool links I found. Um, you can write WebAssembly. And it's it's interesting. It's, it's very informative to write WebAssembly. And there's a book I've got somewhere here uh, by Kevin Hoffman, um, who wrote like a really nice book on WebAssembly. And it, it opens, it starts with showing you how to write raw WebAssembly. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also like this, I can't remember his name, but this really nice um, 
small examples of like WebAssembly um, that you can run, you know, directly in the browser, and it, it's all pretty cool stuff. So you can write straight WebAssembly, but you probably don't want to because it is. It's almost <laughs> like writing x86 assembly. It's not very low it's level. Not impossible. And- yeah, it's, it's very low level. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. very informative to help you understand what WebAssembly is, but it's very low level. So now this is partly where the sort of lie of WebAssembly is a little bit. So generally, you're going to be compiling to WebAssembly from another language. So the big ones there are JavaScript and TypeScript and Rust, and those hmm. languages have really good support for compiling down to WebAssembly. One problem with JavaScript is it's like a garbage collected language. So so you have and you don't have a garbage collector or anything like that in the WebAssembly specification or virtual machine. So you have to put that into your own code. So if you write JavaScript code and target WebAssembly, at the moment, it has to, you end up with quite a large file because that file has to include, um, the WebAssembly has to include like a garbage collection and so on. Mm. Um, now that's one reason that Rust is really popular because Rust doesn't have a garbage collector, so you end up with like a, uh, you can end up with a smaller um, executable or, or WASM file. Now, if you look online, you'll get people claiming that there's like 20 different languages that compile to WebAssembly. And it's it's sort of true, but in reality, there's only like a handful that really makes sense, primarily being Rust and, and your TypeScript. Because if you take those languages and use WebAssembly as the target, you're saying some of those languages, it's going to be, what, inefficient WASM that'll result or just kind of pointless? Both of that. Um, the other big thing is just how uh, mature they are. So Rust has very mature support for, for WebAssembly. Um, and so does JavaScript and TypeScript. And some of the others don't. And I think Go is coming along. I'm not, I've not played with that much, but I think Golang will probably get good support. But again... Golang has this uh, need for garbage collection. However, my understanding, I'm not really up to date on, on the current um, situation, but I think they are looking at including garbage collection in uh, future versions of WebAssembly. So Wasm feels like a compiler to me where you've got some higher level language you've written in, it gets compiled down in this case to to Wasm code instead of um, uh, whatever code it would have been native to your processor, let's say the native "quote unquote" environment we're compiling to is is Wasm. Is is that a fair analogy? Yeah, almost. <laughs> so, <laughs> almost again. Oh, so close. So you absolutely do compile to Wasm. It's like a compiled target. The thing is, what you use to compile to Wasm um, is left to the community. So, like the Rust compiler itself is what you use to target Wasm. Like I just have to tell Russ my target's Wasm and it creates the Wasm for me. Right, okay, yeah. Okay, and yeah, that speaks to why there would be different levels of maturity for different languages because someone has to write a compiler for each language to get it down to WebAssembly and then WebAssembly can take over. So, so then that Wasm object that we get as my, you know, the target I've compiled my code down to, that's, that's like any other web object. I can ship that across the internet as a .wasm, get it in my browser, and if my browser knows what to do with that, then I can execute that object, yeah? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and that's, so it's almost the same as a Java jar file. And it's like, can be used on any platform. It can be used in IoT. So, you know, you can get relatively small WASM files. So IoT is like a big use case. And mm. Yeah, any browser or on server backend, et cetera. Yeah, it's great. 
That actually, yeah, that leads into my next question because I'm trying to think of where this would be useful. And right now, everything seems to be like leaning on JavaScript, at least in the web world, like backends written using JavaScript, front end is using it. Is, is Wasm and WebAssembly going to replace some of those components or just make the existing JavaScript run better? Because maybe you can take what you have and run and compile it for WebAssembly instead. Yeah, exactly. So um, I think it's mainly going to be um, symbiotic. I'm trying to think of the word there. You know, it's <laughs> it's not that Wasm is going to replace things. It's like you're going to use Wasm alongside, I think, more. So you might find, um, I mean, Wasm, to run in the browser, you, you have to use JavaScript to run WebAssembly. Like that, JavaScript provides, you know, effectively the interface between uh, Wasm and, and your browser. Um, so JavaScript's actually essential to WebAssembly. So as an argument, mm. you're going to end up with more JavaScript. Mm. Um, yeah, so you can potentially use Wasm to replace like computationally intensive parts of existing JavaScript libraries, et cetera. Uh, and that's the sort of the web side of things. But there's also, you know, a lot of use cases like IoT, as I mentioned, or, or on the server side where you might not need JavaScript at all, or you don't need JavaScript at all. I'm rudely cutting into this conversation to ask you where you're at with your multi-cloud networking strategy. Because a few different multi-cloud networking vendors, they've come on as podcast guests and they've shared their approach here on the Packet Brushers Podcast Network. One of those vendors is today's sponsor, Aviatrix. And in fact, you heard from Aviatrix engineers and a customer as Ned and I nerded out with them on the Day 2 Cloud podcast, episode number 113. We covered their data plane that's common across all the different clouds, giving you consistent network operations. Now, if Aviatrix isn't a company name you know very well, don't just blow them off. I challenge you to consider all vendors that might solve your problems. And Aviatrix is going out of their way to make it easy for you to include them in your upcoming multi-cloud networking bake-off. First, they are well-funded, so they're going to be around for a long time. Tell your boss, Aviatrix just closed a $200 million Series E funding round if you get asked. Second, Aviatrix is also offering nerdy deep dives for you, the engineer, so that you can make an informed, nuanced decision about whether Aviatrix is the right multi-cloud networking strategy for your organization. They call it flight training, and you can go for a 90-minute hands-on lab, a five-hour deeper instructor-led hands-on experience, and even prep for the Aviatrix Certified Engineer Certification. So give Day 2 Cloud Episode 113 a listen. And then visit aviatrix.com slash flight dash training to find out more. I'm hoping to take the five-hour flight school training sometime myself soon if they can find room for me. Again, that is aviatrix.com slash flight dash training. And let them know you heard about it on the Packet Pushers podcast network. And now, back to today's episode. What are the major use cases of Wasm? What, what are they going to settle out to be? Everybody's talking about what a big deal it is, but as I was admittedly doing a, a light amount of reading compared to the amount of reading I could have done to prep for this. Speed kept coming up as the big thing, you know, the efficiency of it, the ability to run something faster. So is that the big driver for Wasm, Adrian, or is it other capabilities we get in addition to just performance? I think that's where it started. I mean, I don't know, I'm not an expert in history, but I think that's basically where it started was this idea that we need to do something um, fast for like browser like games uh, and stuff like that. So, so doing things fast in a browser. Uh, you just reminded me there's a Doom 3 port that was done in Wasm. I guess it's it's a bit early, but it's kind of a proof of concept. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So is it like so that's where the speed part comes from. But you know, there's an argument that well, it's gonna be, 
you know, if I'm writing in Rust and I, I target Wasm, presumably the Wasm is going to be considerably slower than the if I created like a native executable for Rust because it's got to go through the, the Wasm virtual machine. I don't really, I mean, it's not something I've benchmarked, but presumably there is a, a hit there. But, but regarding use cases, um, yeah, there's a lot of different use cases. Um, IoT is an interesting one. I'd be very interested to see if that one happens because of the, you know, platform independent nature of it. Well, well, well um, IoT, why? Just because uh, Wasm lets me do something with minimal amount of computation and, uh, and memory power, that kind of thing? Yeah, well, it's just this, the whole Java thing where, um, you know, if I create something in Wasm, I can run it on, I don't care about the architecture of the thing that I'm running on. So hopefully I can support a, a bunch of different platforms. And I've got something, you know, sort of small and relatively efficient or like lower powered things as well. Hmm. Right, right. And I think you sort of compared this to Docker where Docker is architecture dependent. So if I want to run uh, an, a Docker image on x86, I can't run the same image on some ARM processor on a Raspberry Pi or something. But if you're developing for IoT, it might be ARM. It might be x86. It might be RISC-V. It might be mm. some future new architecture that we don't even know about yet. But if I, it sounds like if I do it in, in WebAssembly, it's going to run on any of those architectures and I might not have to redo my code at all. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, hopefully. Um, you know, and that's kind of why I compared to Java. It's because that's sort of the promise of Java that was never really fully realized. <laughs> yeah. So I sort of wonder if Wasm's the yeah, spiritual successor of Java. Wow. Yeah. Sounds like we might have to do a whole completely separate episode just on, on WebAssembly. <laughs> let's, uh, let's move on to GitOps. So we mentioned GitOps a little bit. And for folks who are not as familiar with GitOps and Git and kind of what's going on there, um, can you just explain a little bit about what GitOps is and what it's intended for? Yeah, I'm actually doing, so this is a bit embarrassing. So I'm, I'm doing a training on GitOps next week. Um, which I guess by the time this podcast comes out, it'll be like last, a few weeks ago. But um, <laughs> yeah, I'm not really an expert. So I'm currently trying to get up to speed. Basically, um, so especially with Kubernetes, we define our systems in declarative like YAML files. And so there's this obvious thing about saying, okay, it's in YAML, YAML should be version controlled. And when you get to that stage, you're like, well, if it's version controlled, we can start using sort of the GitHub style of operating on things with like pull requests uh, and vetting changes and, and using that model to push out changes and literally have a control over the changes that are happening in our cluster. And also, you know, it gives you a bunch of other stuff, like you can audit things, you can see what the changes were made, who they were made by, uh, and you can make sure outside changes aren't made by accident and, and things like that. Right, you can run git blame and see... See who made that change that broke production. Freaking Ned thirteen thirteen again! I can't. Be, why did you do it, Ned? Why? Because <laughs> I can, Ethan. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess that sort of answers my question of how this trickles from Git and developers. Because typically, when when someone says Git or Git, well, and I usually think of GitHub, but I know Git is its own thing. I usually think of developers, people writing code for applications and stuff. And now that seems to be moving into operations and, oh, GitOps, okay, now operations is involved. But you said this this at least starts with Kubernetes, which uses that declarative syntax, which I can store in version control somewhere. Does GitOps extend beyond the Kubernetes ecosphere? Are, are people using it for something that's not Kubernetes to manage an environment? 
Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think the approach is a, appropriate for all sort of declarative platforms. I don't know what the word is. Um, so as long as you have like YAML or some equivalent that defines where you want your platform to be as opposed to the steps you take to get there. So like, you know, it, it wouldn't work for something like CDK or Pulumi, which is code. Um, well, I guess it does, but it's a bit different. But it would work, um, I guess, for more... Well, one place you already see it, I think, is a lot of people that are doing GitOps, I think, also cover the Terraform, right? Mm. So the actual code you to spin up uh, and define the cluster is also covered with, with GitOps. Yeah, so I think it is appropriate, uh, and we've all seen it use other places. I was going to mention, um, I guess, stuff like CloudFormation, potentially. Uh, but I'm going out, I'm winging it a bit here. I'm not really 100% sure. <laughs> There's a small number of network operators that will keep some sort of a code base tied into Git, Git being a repository of code snippets that are a source of truth for various aspects of what they're doing. And yeah, that could be, you know, playbook or YAML kind of stuff, but it also could be just straight up. It's a Cisco box I'm managing. I've got some Cisco iOS paragraph, some stanza in here that accomplishes something. And they, I've interviewed folks that they'll use that as, again, their source of truth and run code periodically to compare that what they've got built out of the infrastructure and what is in Git, the golden code match, and then make it so if it's not. So it is a, a form of you know, declarative, if you will, uh, to make that mm -hmm. happen. But I, I guess my question for you, Adrian, is do you see lots of people on the operation side taking this GitOp approach? Like there's a movement where we're heading there. I mean, you marked it as a trend, but... To me, it still feels pretty cutting edge because operators are trying to get their heads around this way of thinking and how to use these tools. Yeah, so I think it is, but I, that could be because I live in a bubble. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, you know, I've like a lot of my background is with Docker and so on. So I've, uh, you know, I've talked to people or I hear talks with people like Alexis Richardson from Weave who started this well, or named the movement at least. Uh, and, you know, Weave have a, a flux, which is one of the major tools in, in GitOps. So possibly because I'm in that sort of echo chamber, I hear about it a lot more. But it certainly seems to be uh, to be picking up. People are interested in it. Um, like I said, we're doing a training next week. That Yeah, it certainly seems to be gaffing steam as far as I can tell. And we certainly see it at some of our customers. Our, our customers are certainly interested in it. I couldn't say how many of them use it in production. Mm. Um, but... Yeah, uh, in my view, it's, it's it's getting there, yeah. Right, right. You're seeing it in the experimental phase now, and then yeah. a couple of years down the line. Oh, look, that experiment ended up in production. I hope it works. <laughs> yeah, and also, I think I think a lot of smaller companies are using it in production right now. Yeah, and I think they're seeing a lot of gains by it as well. So I think it's definitely going that way. Okay. I'll probably get an angry like message from Alexis now telling me I got this completely wrong. I'm never talking about this ever again. Well, Alexis is welcome to come on the podcast and, and correct all of us <laughs> in our tomfoolery. Um, let's get back to the wonderful world of Kubernetes. Uh, not that we ever left. I feel like I feel like we're we're living. It's a Kubernetes world, and we're just living it. But at some point, it might not be a Kubernetes world. And you were sort of indicating that you think there's something. There might be something beyond Kubernetes. So what do you what do you think of as the next? evolution beyond Kubernetes, what would it include that Kubernetes lacks today? Um, well, I think the problem is Kubernetes doesn't lack anything at all. It's just, it's like the kitchen sink. Everything's been thrown in there. So what I see as the next evolution is really simplification. 
And I guess that's what I was going, these things tend to go in like almost like circles or spirals or something. So one thing comes up as a reaction to what was there before it. Uh, and I think that's possibly what we'll see is like uh, it makes Kubernetes that fixes the mistakes of Kubernetes. In the same way that Kubernetes fixed, you know, there's like stuff like Mesos and so on before Kubernetes even. And they learned a lot of the, the flaws or, or shortcomings from previous uh, cluster orchestrators. But yeah, so I think, but we talked about this before. And I mean, I'm really not sure what we'll see or what will be the next dominant thing. I just feel like Kubernetes has become too big uh, and too complicated for the majority uh, of people. And we're seeing, you know, Google trying to have to simplify it with um, their automated offerings and so on. Well, too, I mean, too complicated because we nerdy engineers like to flip on all the switches and throw the levers and turn the knobs? Or in other words, it's there and we're using it because it's there. We could use it in a simpler way. Or has it just become too much of a beast to 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 operate? It's a bit of both. I mean, it's... It's interesting because I've seen like it evolve from the start, uh, and I really liked it at the start. There was a few concepts you had to get your head around, like pods and so on. And uh, to be fair, I should say I still really like Kubernetes. It just it's just grown into a bit of a beast. There are so many different options, and people use it in so many different ways. To the extent that you know, if, if you're used to one Kubernetes cluster, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can understand you know your next company's Kubernetes cluster straight away. And that's it. You know, like everybody that picked up Kubernetes said, oh, this is great. We just need to change this one little bit. Uh, and so they created a PR and their changes got in. As opposed to project leadership maybe taking a more opinionated uh, view of where Kubernetes needs to be, which some of the competing projects have been more opinionated. And it's like, it works this way or it only does this. And, you know, it's bounded by, in that way. Yeah, and that's a, you know, I think that's a strong argument sort of against what I said, isn't it? Because, well, if what I was saying is true, why isn't Swarm more successful from Docker? Or why isn't, um, well, I think HashiCorp's probably doing quite well with Nomad now, but Nomad's still certainly an order of magnitude less used than uh, Kubernetes, for example. That could be as simple as branding and marketing, honestly. Yeah, maybe. Uh, and there's also, we hint, I talked about it a little bit before, but this idea of, you know, are we going to see more sort of platform as a service offerings on top of Kubernetes? Mm. And I think we... I think I can't remember the names of the companies, but we mentioned a few in the, I mentioned a few in that blog post of companies trying to sort of build on top of, of Kubernetes. Right. I, I so that's something that I've been thinking about because the way that Kubernetes gets rolled out is it kind of lives on other platforms that came before it. So most of the deployments I've seen are running on virtual machines. They're not running on on bare metal. So. That it's it's a layer of the stack below Kubernetes that needs to support the nodes that are going to run Kubernetes. And now you're sort of talking about, okay, now Kubernetes becomes another layer in that stack. And above that will be platform X, whatever platform X is. And that's the thing that developers and even maybe some operations folks will interact directly with. And you'll have this layer cake of Kubernetes and virtual machines that sit on some sort of hardware that's managed by a cloud. And I see Ethan is just getting more and more upset. About <laughs> I, I, abstractions leak. Um, there, there are unexpected consequences of all the layers. And I, I do fear sometimes that we're getting too far away from what's actually happening. And when it breaks, no one, none of us are going to know how to fix it. And I don't know. We've been saying that for, for years and we've had hypervisors and now that's a normal thing. And what is that other than a, a layer that keeps us very far away from what's really happening? I don't know. Have you seen 
have you seen stuff like Crossplane? And was it the cluster API for Kubernetes? Mm-hmm. So this is basically a way of saying, well, hang on, we can just you know have a Kubernetes um, operators and definitions. Uh, what's the word? Custom custom resource definitions that define the hardware for our cluster. Yeah, we had um, it was Daniel Mangum um, on the on the show a couple of months ago from Crossplane talking about sort of his model of how it works and and he was relating it to LLVM and how that works. It was that was a really interesting episode. We'll include a link in, in the show notes for that one. Uh, but yeah, he was sort of talking about okay, you're gonna, just going to treat. You're going to build platforms using Kubernetes, which you could then use to build more Kubernetes clusters. So it was this sort of like Ouroboros of technology platforms eating each other. Yeah. I Yeah, I got confused quickly. That's <laughs> yeah, really crazy, isn't it? It is. Do you think, uh, and I'm just going to throw this out, is, is there an opportunity to simplify, and maybe that's the future, where we've got WebAssembly that can run on kind of any architecture, but you still need, and we've got GitOps, which lets us define our desired structure in GitOps. I'm going to try to tie it all together. I'm going to try to do it, Adrian. But you need something that reconciles and implements WebAssembly on a target uh, using GitOps. So I I guess what what I'm thinking is what we really need is a new orchestrator, scheduler, reconciler kind of kind of thing that maybe isn't Kubernetes. Does that does that line up with your thought process at all? Um, yeah, potentially. So there's, well, there's a couple of things I want to touch on now. Um, <laughs> I realize you're trying to like get me to like, wrap things up. No, no, but, no. Uh, I, just throwing <laughs> ideas on the wall. I want to see what you pick off. <laughs> so there's two things there. Um, yeah, I think one of the big things Kubernetes gave us is this idea of a reconciliation loop. Uh, and you know, it's actually quite a, a simple, elegant way to do a lot of things in distributed computing. Uh, just having this idea of reconciliation loop and controllers that just constantly sort of look at things and try to bring things into the, the sort of place they're meant to be, which is a bad description, but I think probably most of our listeners are, are aware with the idea of the reconciliation loop. And so, yes, I think we'll start seeing that idea being used in a lot more places. Um, like Crossplane are saying, and are saying basically we're going to use Kubernetes itself to do that in a lot more places. I'm not sure if that's the case. Perhaps we will see uh, newer and, and simpler implementations, or perhaps you know just part of Kubernetes being pulled out. The other thing I want to mention, though, you got into WebAssembly there, is there's something really cool called the Crustlet, which is uh, you know basically lets you use WebAssembly instead of containers in, in Kubernetes. Yeah, that's something we didn't actually get into was how you typically package uh, WebAssembly once you've compiled it. And I think, Ethan, you mentioned a .wasm file, but I guess there's other ways that you could potentially package and distribute it. So is that kind of what you're talking about, Adrian? Um, so, well, you know, in Kubernetes, you run a container. Right. Um, we can, you know, instead, you can just, and a container is just a, well, you don't want a container, you run a Docker image, right? And you give it up to like your container runtime to run uh, this mm-hmm. image, you know, and that's you know traditionally it was handled by Docker. Now it's handled by Container D or let's say Podman. But that's not right. It's whatever the whatever the Cryo the Hat one is. Yeah, so Cryo. I can't remember the bits. I mean, all these is run C, doesn't it? Anyway, I <laughs> <laughs> get into deep technical details. I didn't mean to, um, but you know, you, you can have on Kubernetes. There's something called a kubelet that um, sits on each of your nodes and is basically responsible 
for taking instructions from the Kubernetes control plane about what to run on that node. And then it tells the, the runtime to run whatever. And so as well as having a container one, you can have a WebAssembly one. And instead of taking container images, you'll take WASM files, um, and they'll be run not by a container runtime, but by uh, a WebAssembly virtual machine. OK, so would it still use the pod construct? Runtime. But what's inside the pod is, instead of containers, it's these, I, is, is there a fun word for WASM containers? <laughs> I guess crustlets? <laughs> Um, I don't know if there's <laughs> See, this is only something I've read about. It's something I really want to play with, but I've not done it. Uh, so I'm not sure if there is official terms, but yeah, you got it. Okay, okay, pods, that makes sense. But the pods host um, WebAssembly programs instead of... I think I've heard them called modules. That was, that was oh. some terminology I saw because uh, one startup that I was doing some work with, uh, they set up a WASM registry, which was basically using a standard Docker public registry uh, software, but instead of hosting container images, it was hosting WASM modules. And then you could just pull one of them down like you would pull an image and load it. And I think they were using it with Envoy, which is how they were pulling it down and then dynamically loading it into an Envoy config. But yeah, I, you could do the same thing with Kubernetes if you had the right runtime that, that knows how to do that. That this is bleeding edge stuff, though. I mean, if you look up WASM modules online, you're talking about draft work being done in August yeah. of 2021. So, I mean, this really, it's not like this has been around a while. Yeah. I did say it was a startup, um, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, so one thing is that the, like with WebAssembly, you had to define all the system calls, right? So, like I said, all you had with, with, with the WebAssembly specification, the core specification, is all input and output. It's just like... Uh, a flat section of memory, like big array. So if you want to make, you've got to add all these interfaces on to make, uh, you know, Linux system calls effectively, which is something you didn't have. So they're still really working through all those specifications, WebAssembly system interface, I think it's called. But the work being done there is really interesting. It ties back to the questions and comparisons with Java because they're actually sort of doing it from very much sort of security first perspective. And it's really interesting to see kind of what they're doing there. Yeah, I know that was definitely a concern in the early days of Kubernetes was, you know, could a pod escape to another pod running on the same host uh, since mm -hmm. it is all just, you know, processes and C groups and whatnot. Uh, and I think there, there have definitely been some exploits that do that and then they're patched. But uh, it, I guess if WebAssembly is being engineered in such a way to, from the start, make that really difficult, that's a good thing. I, I, can, I can support that. <laughs> yeah, I think it totally is. All right. Well, I don't think we're going to get back to cloud repatriation because we really we sat on some cool stuff here, you know, between GitOps and Kubernetes successors and and Wasm. Uh, so why don't you uh, just take a moment, if you could, Adrian, to sort of summarize a few key takeaways for our listeners out there. I can't come back to WebAssembly. I worry that it's just because I'm, I'm personally find it fascinating. Um, but I I do think it is worth looking into WebAssembly and like. Uh, seeing if you can make use of that. I wonder if it's if it's one of these things that'll just be underneath the, the the surface, if you like, rather than in most people's faces. Actually, GitOps is probably an easier takeaway. Um, I definitely think that if you're using Kubernetes or you're looking at using Kubernetes, um, you should look at GitOps. Um, that doesn't mean you have to use the tools like Flux and Argo CD and so on. It just means you need to think about how you're going to manage changes to the YAML in your cluster. 
The point being, not by hand. Um, basically, um, but that's kind of what normally happens at the minute, right? Uh, people just go in and run kubectl commands yeah. to fix things or change things or update things. Then somebody else comes in and they're running them at the same time. Uh, and, you know, that's fine for maybe a, a, if you've only got two or three ops people in charge of that. But once you get beyond that, yeah, you need to you need some controls in place. And Git gives you a good way of doing that. I was about to launch into another point. I was like, no, control yourself, Adrian. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think those are two good takeaways. If you, if WebAssembly has tickled your fancy, definitely go check that out. I know there's some resources online to get started and a lot of reading that you can do. Uh, and if you haven't already checked out GitOps, uh, I think you said Weaveworks was one of the, at least one of the ones that sort of coined the term. I think they have a whole blog post or, or, or a guide on how to get started with GitOps. So that would be some two good places to get started for folks out there. Um, if people want to know more about you, if they want to follow you, do you have a, a social media presence or a blog you'd like to point them at? Yeah, Twitter's by far the best way to, to find me at the minute. Um, also, like the, the I mainly write on the Container Solutions blog at the minute. Okay. Twitter, so yeah, we will come and check. Say hi on Twitter. Cool. We will include those links in the show notes as well. Uh, and Adrian, thank you so much for appearing. I know it's towards the end of the day for you. You're starting to wind down a little bit. So we appreciate you taking the time out to talk with us today on Day 2 Cloud. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed being here. It was a good, it was a good um, hour for me. Excellent. And hey, listeners, thanks to you for listening all the way to the end. Virtual high fives to you for tuning in. If you've got suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. You can hit either of us up on Twitter at Day2CloudShow, or you can fill out the form on my fancy website, nedinthecloud.com. Did you know the Packet Pushers Podcast Network has a Slack group for IT professionals? It's true. It's true, and you could sign up at packetpushers.net slash slack for free, and we will see you in there. Until next time, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. <laughs>